Well, uh, this morning, like I said, we're going to focus our attention on verses 20 to 22 for our studies, uh, where we read about these generations that follow in Abraham's family line and uh, the faith that they uh, demonstrated there. And as we come to these verses, we see that a main question this section answers is that of uh, what does it look like to live by faith in a way that finishes well? Um, and uh, as, as we think about uh, this whole idea of finishing well, uh, we recognize that on the one hand, it's a fairly uh, basic, and general, uh, a basic and general question to ask, and it applies to so many areas of life. We, uh, we have our professional lives where we seek to finish the proposals for our supervisor well. We have our school lives where we seek to complete our assignments well. We have our, our personal lives, maybe where we seek to uh, finish that home project well or complete those those uh, uh, financial planning goals well, we're uh, consistently reminded of the fact that we go on in life desiring to finish whatever is laid before us in a way that is profitable and fitting given the circumstances that, uh, that it represents. Uh, so on the one hand, it's a fairly basic question to ask and answer uh, with regard to questions in, in our lives. What does it look like to finish well? Uh, but even as we ask that question, we understand that there is an immediate weightiness that does attend that question as we think about it in relationship to our Christian lives. And there's a weightiness to these words because there is a unique level of seriousness that attends this question as we think about what it means to go on in this life persevering in faithfulness to Jesus to the very end. And that's because we know that uh, to follow Jesus is not a matter of, of merely making a decision that we can reflect on in history past, but following Jesus is a matter of going on in a way that reflects this faithfulness to Him, come what may, on the dark days, on the, on the happy days in all of life, following Jesus is a lifelong pilgrimage. And so, finishing well, it's this great objective of our Christian faith, and that by God's grace, we want to go all the way to the end of our life seeing Jesus for who He is, and following Him in a manner worthy of the great kindness that He's extended to us in salvation. This, this finishing well is a serious matter. And when it comes to this subject, uh, the sense of seriousness is also involved, not just because of, of what it means to live out the Christian life in a, in a faithful kind of way, but, but also because as we bring this topic up, um, we're also immediately reminded probably of those who have begun by confessing some level of trust in Jesus and ultimately proved to not finish well. Our minds can go there. If, if we're in the Christian life for any length of time, we know those who have started out claiming to profess faith in Christ and then ultimately ending up in a place that is far from Christ. And we, and we know these, these people, we've seen these kinds of things worked out before us. Uh, maybe you remember in the Chronicles of Narnia where there are a number of different characters, but all the way through there's that special focus on Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. And, and in the book, The Last Battle, there's that scene where uh, Tyrion's being introduced by High King Peter to all these different characters from Narnia's history. And, and then Tyrion has this, this troubling question after he's met a whole bunch of these characters. He says to Peter, he says, Sir, if I've read the Chronicle aright, there should be another, has not your majesty two sisters, where's Queen Susan? To which Peter answers, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he answers shortly and gravely, Peter says, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. 
And then Eustace, he's there and he chimes in and he says, and whenever you've tried to get her to come talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. And then the character by the name of Jill chimes in and says, oh, Susan, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. So, so, so in the Chronicles of Narnia, Susan started with them, but she didn't finish with them. And then it's C.S. Lewis's way of, of portraying this reality that finishing well is not always what we see people of life came in and pulled their professing faith in Christ. And in Susan's case, the distractions of life came in and pulled her away uh, from, from the heavenly realities that are portrayed in those stories. And as life goes on for some, as it turns out, their faith is not the kind of genuine faith that perseveres to the end. And we have these kind of examples. We think of, of spiritual leaders who make the news with their failings and it's so discouraging. Or we think of individuals who maybe mentored us or had a big influence in our lives who ultimately fouled out. Um, I had a, a friend in high school named Chad and we've recently, over the past few years, we've rekindled our relationship and Chad came to faith in high school through another mutual friend. And as we've rekindled our relationship, he's remained in contact with this, with this other guy uh, who actually now totally rejects the Christian faith, even though he was so instrumental in Chad's own coming to Christ. And Chad's still going along in the Christian life, wonderfully trusting in Jesus. And so it's been a discouraging experience for him as this relationship, which was so profoundly significant for him, is, is damaged by, uh, by the fact that this person has decided to go in another direction. So, so when it comes to finishing well, we can consider this subject, and there are these sad examples of not finishing well that come quickly to mind. And, and it's not, on the one hand, necessarily a bad thing to consider these negative examples well, because those negative and sad instances can actually prove to be very effective instructors for us with regard to our own perseverance. In fact, in Hebrews, the preacher has used uh, these kinds of negative examples as he's referenced that wilderness generation, you remember, who, who ultimately didn't trust in God and didn't, didn't enter God's rest. There's, there's something grave and sobering about that, but at the same time, there's a great deal of righteous motivation that comes as we recognize our own frailty and weakness and find ourselves in significant need of God's grace for our own perseverance. We see the critical nature of pressing on well, come what may, in the Christian life. So sad examples, they can be very effective teachers. But at the same time, we also understand that we need more than that. Instead of only those discouraging situations, we know very well that we also need to be prepared to uh, counter those more sorrowful instances of not finishing well with the encouraging and life-giving examples of those who do persevere well to the end. And we have those examples that come to mind in manifold ways as well. You, you can probably think right now of some people in your life who certainly may not have had an easy run of things, but they're perseverers. And in their perseverance in the faith, in their perseverance of trust in God and His promises in Christ Jesus, we can find enormous and actually a quite joyful motivation for our own continuing as we watch them go on in their own lives of faith. And as we come to verses 20 to 22 of Hebrews 11 this morning, it's actually this kind of positive help that's here for us with regard to what it looks like to reach the end of this life with a commendable kind of finishing faith. In fact, if you just have it open there in front of you and you glance at verses 20 to 22, you notice that in each of the three uh, brief biographical comments here, so in, in the cases of, of Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph, 
In each of these individuals, the preacher is recounting situations that demonstrate great faith near the end of their lives. Uh, of course, as we think about these, uh, these different characters in the biblical storyline, much could have been said about any one of their lives in the beginning, in the middle. Right? Lots could be said about Joseph and his trials of faith in the pit and going all the way to the palace and all of these kinds of things. But instead, what we have the preacher doing here is purposefully bringing us to the end of these individuals' lives in order that we can reflect on the biographical elements that are, that are here and uh, be encouraged in our own perseverance to the end in believing. Uh, we need to know what it looks like to get all the way to the end of life with our trust and faith uh, in, in, in persevering tact. Uh, this is a big need. And this is a big need represented in the first audience of Hebrews, isn't it? This is something that just reoccurs all the way through the letter. Their need is one of going forward in the faith, not drifting back from the fullness of what's offered in Jesus. They need this kind of persevering motivation. And we know we need that kind of encouragement too. Uh, because our big need, my need, your need, believers of every generation, our need is to be compelled by the truth of God's promises and keep going well in the faith. In fact, if you remember back from chapter 3, it, it, it's actually definitive for us as Christian believers uh, that those who are genuinely Christian believers will persevere to the end. For, for those who are in Christ, they're going to keep on. And so we need this truth in order to help us uh, go along in those ways, even, even though there can be troubling and trying days that tend to trip us up. Now, uh, just reading through Hebrews has reminded me so often of Pilgrim's Progress, and, and you'd, it'd, be, it'd be great to pick up a copy of that and read it. In fact, I think Crossway has republished it with a very readable version, so you're not bogged down by some of that old English. But, uh, but we remember Christian's journey, and there are heights on Christian's journey in Pilgrim's Progress, but then he's, he's swamped in the miry bog, and he's troubled in the valley of the shadow. All of these things, as he goes along in the life of faith, these things come to us, but in the end, it's perseverance that we long uh, to exercise. And so it's this kind of positive look that we get in the biographies here this morning in terms of what it looks like to go all the way to the end of life in this posture of trust. And so, and so if, you, if you look at these verses, what we're going to do is we're going to trace three lines of commonality through verses 20 uh, to 22, uh, just by way of orienting us to the text. It's actually interesting that while there are these three unique individuals here, that there's actually three lines that run through each of their lives that give evidence as to what uh, got them to the finish line, so to speak, in this posture of trust. What does it look like to finish? Well, there's these three lines of commonality that are here. Uh, that we're going to that we're going to consider. So so we'll just trace our way through these these verses three times as we study and notice uh, in the individual lives uh, what's represented. Um, and so if you want to look at the text, uh, we're we're first of all going to consider um, what it looks like to finish well in our life of faith. And and in these verses, we're going to note that one major element that's present in each of these three lives is that of interminable conviction. Interminable conviction. Now, I, I know that's not a very good heading, interminable conviction. In fact, I struggled with this heading. Uh, I talked to Julia about it. She told me I shouldn't use it uh, because, because it, it's, it's a strange word. I don't think I've actually ever said that word out loud before, um, interminable. But, but it's such a fitting word. I couldn't, I couldn't get past using it, so I'm going to use it anyway. I'm committed to using it now. Um, but, but it's such a fitting word for describing what's going on here because interminable means exactly what it sounds like. Interminable means something that does not terminate. It's something that goes on in an unending kind of way. 
And, and, and we see this interminable quality of conviction in these end-of-life biographies here. And we, we just need a big word to capture the bigness of what this means. So we're sticking with the big, strange word, but we're using it. Um, so, so look at how this plays out. Beginning in verse 20. Interminable conviction. Um, there we have Isaac near the end of his life. We know he's, he's fairly near the end of his life, just as we remember the story from Genesis, but also because this is when the father would bless the sons as their days were, as the father's days were uh, dwindling down. Um, Isaac, we are told in Genesis, he knows himself to be old and advanced in years, these kinds of things. And so he's going to impart this fatherly blessing on his sons. And uh, we read here that Isaac blesses his sons concerning things to come. Concerning things to come. So file that away. Move down to verse 21. We have Jacob. And here Jacob, we read, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. So now here's Jacob, uh, now an old man. He's committing his grandsons to God's future purpose, just as Isaac had done a generation earlier. And then we have Joseph next in verse 22. And we read there how Joseph, at the end of his life, spoke about the exodus from Egypt and gave instructions concerning his bones. And we know from the Genesis account of this, and then later from actually from Exodus chapter 13, uh, that uh, when uh, Israel leaves their captivity in Egypt, they're bringing Joseph's bones back with them to the land of promise. That's what Joseph wanted, that his, that his remains would be taken back uh, to Canaan. And so with all this in mind, we can see that in each of these biographical sketches, one thing that stands out is this what we'll call interminable conviction that's represented in these patriarchs. They have this unending assurance of God's promises. So, so Isaac, he's still a nomad when he blesses his sons here. He, he hasn't received the fullness of God's blessing uh, that, that God had given uh, to Abraham, all those promises. Isaac's still a nomad in the land. Jacob, he's a stranger in the land of Egypt after that whole famine situation where he goes and, and he meets up there with Joseph and his sons. He's not in the land of promise. He's a stranger. And then Joseph, well, he's still in Egypt, and quite frankly, things are going very well for him in Egypt. Uh, but even still, as he approaches death, Egypt doesn't hold Joseph's heart. We see that here. The promises of God hold his heart. So, so Joseph is still looking forward now to a time some 400 years later Later, that when Israel is going to return to this land of promise uh, that God had promised to give to Abraham and to his offspring. They're looking forward to this future promise. Though none of these men, like we've seen in other cases in Hebrews 11, none of these individuals have actually realized God's promises. And yet what marks out their persevering at the end of life? What is it? Well, they have this faith that doesn't end. It's interminable even by their own death. Even in the face of death, which stops all things, humanly speaking, even when these three face the personal reality of their own mortality, their faith goes beyond that as they recognize that death itself can't terminate the conviction present that God is going to bring about what God has said He's going to bring about. So down through the generations, their faith reaches, even beyond their own death, this interminable Conviction. You see why we have to use this word. It's this unending faith that extends down uh, past even through their own lives. They're coming to the, to the very end of their mortal existence um, with this assurance, continuing assurance of God's uh, future promises. And so when it comes to finishing well, uh, this is such a critical component and it's critical just for us to reflect upon it. The writer to the Hebrews, he's brought it up a few times, but from these different angles. So, so we need to think just in terms of these examples and then also just in terms of examples in our own lives. For, for those whom you have known, 
who have gone all the way to death well, not, not bitter, but full of hope, for those who have done that, full of hope in the Lord Jesus, isn't this something that's present in their lives? This kind of interminable conviction. This conviction that, that, that's not less than, than ultimately displayed in the Lord Jesus himself, even as he makes comments about his own death and resurrection. Uh, Destroy this temple, three days I'll rise again. Ultimately, this is resurrection kind of hope that's here. And we know those people in our own lives, modeled after Jesus' own posture of trust in the Father to bring back life in a place where there's death, that at the end of the day, death cannot be the final word in the promises of God. And even as those whom we have loved and approached their own dying day, uh, do so with joy, we recognize that this is present in their lives and this must be present in ours if we're going to persevere to the end. God's promises will stand. I'm, I'm going to keep going even, as in the case of Hebrews, even when sliding away might be a little bit tempting and seem a little more comfortable, I'm going to keep going in my trust because reaching through the immediate events of my own life, reaching even through the immediacy of my own mortality is a matter of trusting that God's promises will stand, all things will be made new, and I have this glorious hope that's there for me in Christ. And, and in this is one of the most central and critical truths about perseverance that we just need to have very plain in our minds, in that, in that we live a life of interminable conviction, not because we're hoping at the final day to gain all of this grace that God is going to give to us if we can just make it across the finish line. But as the lives of these patriarchs represent, they're living lives of unending conviction based on the fact that God has already said, here are my promises, this is what I'm going to do. And now they're living out a life responding to that truth. It's very easy to, to read something like this and think, you know, by faith I've got to get this done so I can have all the blessings of God. That is not how the patriarchs are looking at things. They're looking at things saying, look at all God has promised for us. Look at these absolute promises God has made, promises that cannot be corrupted because God himself is perfect and holy and will bring them to pass. And so what are we going to do? We're going to run with faith in those promises going forward, not in order to get them, but because God in his grace has given them to us. These promises are unending, not because I've got to persevere and keep working up the reality of them in order to get uh, the full uh, experience of them. But they're unending simply because they come from the God who has assured us that His purposes in these things will stand. And so we're compelled by that. Again, we come back to the gospel order of things. These men are not running to the end well, hoping to get, but they're running to the end well because they are absolutely assured of what they have. Why else would, would Joseph be there in all the riches of Egypt and talk about wanting to go back, wanting to have his bones carried back? He's looking forward to the hope of the land that God has promised. And then if we could just say one other thing, almost as an aside here, but it's worth pointing out, and commentators all, all do bring this up, which is interesting. But you see in these verses, with regard to their interminable conviction, we do see uh, that what's highlighted here is their speaking. Do you notice that? In so many of the other cases so far down through this gallery of faith, as it's sometimes called, there's actions taken. You know, Moses builds the boat. All these different things. Uh, wow. Go back to Sunday school. Noah builds the boat. All of these kinds of things. Um, but here, we have this focus on the fact that they're speaking in a way that reflects a hope that's theirs. They're blessing and they're instructing. Do you see that in the text? Right? And it's just a good reminder to us that words indicate so much of what's going on in our hearts. Right? 
Our words uh, can, can, can indicate very much that I'm living this life of, of grumbly dissatisfaction rather than a life of persevering grace, trusting in all that God, God has promised. And so even in the, in the emphasis on that, these men with their unending faith, how it's manifesting, even in the words they're using to look past their immediate situation with hope, that's a lesson to us as well, just in terms of perseverance. Are my words, are my words uh, grumbling words? Are they bitter words? Are they uh, words that are unsatisfied? The preacher in chapter 13 is going to have to talk to these people about contentment in Hebrews. Are my words discontented words or are my words reflecting the fact that this is coming? This is coming for me, all that's there for us in Christ, for all of those who trust in him. This is coming. And so our words are filled with hope uh, rather than discontent. And so... Uh, just to bring that to bring that to a close, and there's more we could say there for sure, but but this interminable conviction exists, this unending conviction up to the end of life and even through death itself, a conviction that doesn't end in the fact God is going to bring about what he said he's going to bring about, and we can be encouraged by that. And then secondly, we also see here that finishing well is not just a matter of this interminable conviction, so we've got that in place, but it's also a matter of embracing God's conventions conventions. And uh, probably at this point you realize I was struggling with headings this week, but, but I kept coming back to the ones I was using because I, I, I think they just fit. So I'll, I'll have to explain myself, I know, but um, embracing God's conventions. When I was teaching school, part of grading students' writing samples was a matter of evaluating their conventions in papers. And conventions as, as, a, as a category of writing would include things like grammar and punctuation and and uh, spelling and all of those kinds of things. So, so conventions in writing references uh, the acceptable standards of how things look, grammatically speaking, on a page. Um, but, but to just uh, get a bit philosophical with the terminology, conventions don't just exist in writing, do they? In fact, we even use that kind of terminology, social convention. Conventions extend beyond uh, the, the, the grammar that we might have learned in school because when it comes to living our lives, we bring our own conventions to, life as, to our lives as well. We bring a kind of rubric of, of the right forms of things for our life. We have our own set of acceptable standards for, for this is how things are supposed to look. This is how things are supposed to go. You know, maybe a nice comma right there after graduation. And then we're going to need a, a coordinating conjunction at about 25 years old. And then a new paragraph at 35. Another new paragraph maybe at 65. We have our plans laid out according to the conventions of our life. We, we, we expect them and in a sense almost require them so often uh, to look a certain way. This is how life's going to go for me. And as we consider this matter of finishing well, one element that must come into play is that of going through life and trusting ourselves to the conventions of God's for, God for our life rather than uh, trying to scramble to hold on for, to our guidelines for how we think things should look. Finishing well is a matter of embracing God's conventions. It's a matter of embracing with joy God's ordering of our life. He's going to order our life either way. He's the one over all things. It's a matter of embracing that with joy. And we actually see this, this highlighted here, this, this embracing of God's providences. Uh, we see this in, in each of these lives as the preacher to the Hebrews brings it out in different kinds of ways. So, so just look at this here for, for a minute. Uh, Isaac, first of all. Isaac had those two boys, Esau and Jacob. You remember that? Uh, Isaac was older. Jacob was younger. 
And that's how we'd even expect things to be stated in, in verse 20 there. Esau and then Jacob. That's the normal convention for uh, writing down the order of things, Esau and Jacob. But the name order is even reversed there, if you notice that. Jacob and Esau in verse 20. And, th- and that reminds us of the incident back where, where Isaac ultimately gave Jacob the blessing that would, under normal conventions, have gone to the older brother Esau. But, but, but in that convoluted incident back in Genesis 27 with the whole soup thing and all, and all of that, the order of blessing was reversed. Jacob received the greater blessing, not Esau. And that's not how things are supposed to go according to normal conventions. In fact, we, we know even that Isaac liked Esau more to begin with. So it wasn't just a matter of human convention, but it was a matter of human preference for Isaac. It was, it was not Isaac's agenda to switch, switch things up. But we know from the witness of Scripture that this is exactly how God determined things would go. Jacob, not Esau, would be the one who would continue the line of promised blessing that was, that was coming through Abraham. God's conventions are different than human preference or tradition in that case. And ultimately, Isaac recognizes this truth that marks out his life. He's told, he told Esau, when Esau was very upset about this whole thing, what did he say? Well, the blessing's already been given. It's It's done. I can t- talk to you a little bit, but pretty much is done. And we have the same thing happening in Jacob's life in verse 21. Uh, because not only does, does Jacob bless Joseph's sons in a way that, that blesses the younger over the older. If you remember the whole hand-switching thing that goes on there in Genesis 48. Uh, so we have this repeat of, of the Jacob-Esau situation to a certain degree then with Joseph's sons. They're out of the conventional order. So, so that's there and is brought up in this text. But there's also something else to notice in verse 21, which, which actually can be a, a little tricky to notice because of our English translation, but it's important to see. Uh, you remember how back before Joseph was sold into slavery and he was still uh, enjoying being Jacob's favorite son at home, remember how word got back to Jacob about uh, these dreams that Joseph was having where, where his brothers and even his dad Jacob would bow down to him. And so his dad, Jacob, he calls uh, Joseph in pretty annoyed with him. And he, and he says this. He says, what is this dream that you've dreamed? How many of us as parents have had these conversations? Maybe not a dream, but what is this thing you're doing? What, what in the world am I hearing about going on out there with you and your brothers? So shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? I mean, come on. Is what he's saying to him. We, we, we know that's not how things go, Joseph. You're the second to littlest brother. That's not the ordering of things. And what father bows down to their own son? It's just weird, Joseph, to be doing this. It's not how things go. So I need you to quit talking like that. It's just, it's just not conventional. But then here we are in verse 21. And we have this statement, which is a direct quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament from the Septuagint in Genesis 47, 31, where we're told that Jacob not so much worshipped like our translation reads here, but Jacob bowed, he bowed down, leaning on the top of his staff. So, so this quote is from the situation following Jacob's blessing of all his children uh, together. He's called them together, he's blessed his sons, and then he calls Joseph to himself, and in that setting, they're far from home in this land of Egypt, and he, he bows down, that section ends with him bowing uh, in this interaction with his son. It's the same word for bow that's used earlier in Genesis for exactly what Jacob said he and his brothers would not be doing. But we see that's exactly what's happening. 
Joseph, in his old age, is realizing the conventions of God at play in his life. He's old, he's got a bow on his staff, but now his son, who is in the highest command in all of Egypt, except for Pharaoh himself, his son's dreams, given by God, had come to pass, and Jacob acknowledges God's unconventional program is far greater than his own expectations of how his life would go. He's acknowledging this. And so instead of never bowing, like he, like he originally said, he recognizes Joseph's place of prominence as a fulfillment of God's revelation in those dreams. And he bows. God's conventions over his own. And then, and then what about uh, Joseph himself and the conventions of God? Uh, Joseph's own life was, was one of, of coming up as a favorite son. You know, he got that really nice coat from his dad. And then what happened? Well, his brothers hated him, sold him into slavery, uh, which at first proved to be a very dark period in Joseph's life. Uh, but where is Joseph here at the end of his life? Has, has he disowned his brothers and distanced himself from the land promised to his family line through Abraham here at the end of his life? Is he bitter toward the God of his family history? Right? Which often, doesn't that play a, a significant role in people walking away from the faith? I'm bitter toward the God of my family history. Look at where it got me. I'm so much better off in Egypt now. Back home for those 17 years with you jokers and all the trouble you caused me. The God of whatever you're born. I, I want no part of that. I'm happy here in Egypt. Look at how high I've gone. Is that where Joseph ends up at the end of his life? No. No. Here he is trusting in God's purposes. Asking that his bones be returned to the land. Having been... Uh, even reconciled to his brothers by this time in his life. It's an amazing statement of faith. Joseph isn't distanced from the God whose providences can be dark at times, but instead he's fully trusting that in difficulty, God's good purposes still stand. He's recognizing God's conventions are not his own. It's not how Joseph would have thought things would go, but, uh, but it's how things went according to God's rubric, and he's acknowledging that. So, so in these various scenes depicted here, in terms of, of, of the blessing and the, and the commitment to return to the land of Canaan, all of these things, what we see is that these men who persevered in the faith ultimately lived to yield to God's conventions for their life. They, they didn't live saying that their own preconceived notions of how life must go must stand. They didn't live that way. But instead, they acknowledged the hand of God in their lives in ways that they could never and would never have put together, uh, recognizing that human preferences and plans and traditions yield to the form of what God is going to bring about in the life of faith. And how critical is this for us to comprehend when it comes to finishing well? This is absolutely vital. We just ask the question, are you where you thought you'd be right now in life? Are you? Are you? I'm not. I'm not, I've, I've, 15 years ago, I figured I'd be teaching middle school English in rural Oregon with Christmas break. We're not where we are. These things change. So how critical is it to our perseverance to recognize that while there is certainly wisdom in planning, uh, the experiences we go through, the places we end up, the life courses that alter uh, from what we originally thought they would be, whether the days are like, like Joseph's days, some way down in the pit, some way up in the palace, these are God's days to order. And as we come to terms with that, that perseverance will be worked in our own hearts when we learn to yield that, uh, to the fact that His conventions instead of my conventions are going to be the one that determine not only how my life will go, but how my life will go gloriously along His good path of His good plans for me. And we can persevere in this posture of trust and joy this way rather than, what's the opposite? Well, rather than that bitterness that can set in. I thought it was supposed to be like this, but it's like this and I don't like it. 
We can keep going in a posture of trust rather than wallowing in self-pity. I just feel so sorry for myself that I'm here. I should have been there, but I'm over here. We can keep going in a posture of trust rather than, than singing songs about what might have been. We can keep going in a posture of trust rather than worrying about our tomorrows. All of this is so freeing in terms of perseverance. We may not be where we plan to be, but God's good purposes are His uh, intimately acquainted with all our ways good purposes, like Psalm 139 talks about. He hems us in behind and before He lays His hand upon us. Even the day we die was written in His book before one of our days ever came to be, that David says in Psalm 139. So under His care, rather than worry, like Jesus reminds us, we leave the next day to His provision and purposes. And we do so seeing uh, that, uh, just to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, all these things come to me, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. So, so this helps us finish well. I can keep going with these kind of elements intact, not least of all the fact that God is the one who is over my days and I'm where I am by His purposes and for His purposes, recognizing that He has His good for me in those lessons learned in the darkness, joy that I can express in the midst of the, of the happy and light times. He's bringing me along just according to His plans for me. And so we finish well as we exercise death which stops everything can no matter what through death I recognize God's purposes are going to stand. Death which stops everything cannot stop this. It's unterminating commitment to the realities of all God has promised through Jesus. And we finish well as we embrace God's conventions. His ways stand. Oftentimes looking so much different than our plans. But his good ways stand and as we yield to those we find great persevering grace. And then, and then just to, to notice one more thing here in this passage, we can also see uh, that a faith that finishes well includes promise-centered transmission. Promise-centered transmission. Again, I'll explain. Um, so in each of these lives, if you look here, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they all come up to their final day uh, not concerned necessarily to, to write their memoirs and, and, re, and recount their own histories. You know, sons come around me and then, and then they talk about themselves the whole time. No, instead what they're concerned to do is promote the truth that God has promised to them, to those who remain, so that they can continue going on in the faith. There's this promise-centered transmission that exists in their lives. Isaac and Jacob, they bless their family according to the promise God gave to Abraham, their grandfather and great-grandfather, and then, and then um, or father and grandfather, and then Joseph, his own final testimony regarding his bones is going to serve to be a testimony to faith those 400 years later as Israel's leaving in, in the Exodus. So, so in each of these cases, the men didn't die uh, with the knowledge of God's truth merely existing in their own hearts, but they passed on that truth through their family line and in their sphere of further influence. And certainly that's a central element to finishing well also. A faith that finishes well is, is, in my experience, as I just think about these things, you think about these things too, a faith that finishes well is never a private faith. And certainly, as in the case of the first hearers of Hebrews, it's not a faith that shrinks back, but a faith that finishes well is one that's transmitted from the believer to others who will grow up in the faith. There's this promise-centered transmission that exists. Obviously, a, a place for application here isn't just in our own family lives. We know this. 
that promise-centered transmission? What, what are we most concerned about to pass on to our children? Children, as you're watching your parents, uh, what are you thinking is most important as you then have the opportunity to pass those on uh, to, to your family members on, on down the line as things will go? We recognize that there are central things we pass on, whether we mean to or not. It may be our love of hobbies. It may be our, our, uh, our, our concern for a certain work ethic. It may be the supreme value of leisure time. It can be all kinds of things that we pass on. But what we want to do most of all is not have something like our politics be the most critical thing in our life, but this promise-keeping attention to faith be the most important thing to our life in, in our lives, recognizing that for our own children, for those around us, the significance and centrality of what Jesus Christ has done supersedes all things. So whatever else might be important to me in the moment, none of that is as big a deal to me as passing on the fact that I have hope in Christ, even as we face darker days maybe as a family or as we as we go through happy times we are those who go through those times rejoicing and trusting bringing in the fact that it is the sufficiency of christ that is holding me up in all of these things and it is him who i ultimately want to glorify i care about my lord and savior and what he thinks of the way i live my life i want to please him because he saved me and these things are absolutely central to us this this finishing well marked by a gospel promise transmission listen you who will listen uh, these these uh, patriarchs are saying to those around them there is a promise keeping god and a promise that transcends death must be grasped by your heart in order that you can keep going in this way of faith and realize the great grace that's there for you ultimately through the lord jesus christ and so we recognize the significance of this and not just that but but but, but in terms of a home and family thing but this just includes all our relationships Will those who have been around us look back on the influence of our lives and benefit from the transmission of gospel truth? This is great commission stuff that's here. The, the generations of promise are the generations of those who will believe in the gospel. We know these are the true children of Abraham, those who will come to Christ in faith. And those generations are, are uh, continually upheld by the promise of God as we continue to do our work of passing that on to others and to those around us. And the great benefit of that transmission as we do that is not only that others come to faith in Christ and see the glories of all that's promised to them, but another benefit of that is we actually find ourselves renewed again and again and again in this kind of hope that we keep speaking about, and we find ourselves persevering people. You just, you just think about it. Those, those who really stand out to you as perseverers, do they stand out as those who persevered in isolation? They do not. They stand out as lives who have these continual ripples of gospel effect all through lives of other people around him. Those who we think about who have affected us so much who we can look to and say, I understand uh, that the Lord Jesus put you in my life to help me keep on in the faith and I look to your example and I praise God for his work in your life and that's how I want to do, that's how I want to do things. Remember Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. There is that necessity of Christian example that's there for us in our Christian living and we look to those who have persevered to the end and what did they do? They all all transmitted that promise. They were all about that. And so as we put these things together, uh, we recognize that what's here is significant for us is as we think about what it looks like to finish well. We finish well having this interminable conviction. Death itself is not enough to stop God's promises for my life. 
We finish well as we go on. Embracing God's conventions, his providences, his ordering of things can seem strange to me. It can certainly seem out of, the, out of the normal order that I was expecting and I had planned out, but I recognize them in my life and I yield to them, knowing that God is the one who cares for me all the way through. And then as we go on in these ways, we're centered on the work of transmitting that promise, uh, that promise giving good news to others uh, so that they can not only benefit from the reality of that truth, uh, but even in, that own, even in that act itself, our own hearts are renewed in the fact that God is good and will continue to be good. And our faith is founded on the rock who is solid. And so in these things, we're helped. It's, it's what it looks like to finish well. We need help finishing well. And the preacher here gives us good things to think about in terms of what that perseverance uh, can look like. So we're thankful for this work. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that this would be a word of encouragement to us this morning. We desire to be people who persevere. The letter to the Hebrews brings that up so regularly for us. And we want to be those who go on in the faith, recognizing that we're compelled not only by your promises, but we're compelled by your continual and regular concern for us. You're active in our lives for our good. Come whatever turns come. And we pray that we would be able to rest in that and you would show your purposes uh, to be gloriously good for us, and then we would be able to pass that on to others. We, we trust in you for this, and we rely upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.